Hi, and welcome to part two of the podcast with Kevin Godley. If you haven't heard part one, I suggest you listen to that first, as Kevin talks about his journey to 10cc and where his desire to experiment came from. Now, if you want to follow, support, add yourself to the newsletter or connect to my Spotify music lists where you can listen to the music that the artists have been involved in, then go to the link tree link and check it all out. Here's Kevin talking about the end of 10cc. The problem we had as a band, we were essentially a studio outfit. You know, we, 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 we sort of translated to the stage, but we were never that comfortable there. Um, we didn't look the part, really, as a unit. Some of us looked okay, and some of us were comfortable, but it, was, it, it didn't gel as a live thing other than the sound. And that was gradually becoming more and more important at the time. And um, we were becoming aware now, because we'd signed with a big label, we'd moved on from a small label to uh, a larger label, Phonogram. And there was a bit of pressure, you know, in, in this music that you made is, is successful. So perhaps when you're making your next record, you should be thinking of doing a song like this and maybe one of those and a funny one and a long godly cream one. You know, that kind of preemptive process was, was coming into the mix. And it was, it, was, it was a bit uncomfortable for myself and Lar, particularly for me, because it, that element of jeopardy was gradually being eroded. It was like... Um, I'm having to write to brief now. We need a funny one. Okay, let's go away and write a funny one. I'm not in a funny mood, you know. And of course, we had a road crew and we, you know, we had tours lined up. And there was, in other words, we had responsibilities which crept up on us to, to a degree. And that became uncomfortable. You know, I don't want to sound like a spoiled brat, and I'm not moaning about it. It's just that, that what drove me, as you rightly said, was, was the need to keep changing and trying new stuff. That, was, that didn't quite fit the mould anymore. That wasn't the mould. That wasn't what we were doing. We, we created a, a successful beast. So our job was now to keep it successful. Um, I've always thought about the music industry in, in terms of, the, they, they were in that era particularly, the gatekeepers, uh, you know, the people in the record companies. But why would they know any better than the musicians making the music? <laughs> probably because they were the labels and they represented and released artists many, many different artists, and they, I imagine, analysed how and why some artists were successful and why some artists weren't quite so successful. But 
I think the one thing that made us stand apart from that syndrome was the fact that we, we weren't operating out of London, which was the main, the main sort of centre of the music business, both in terms of talent, recording and labels. We were, we were up in the north of England in our own little studio and therefore the label kind of felt that what we were doing okay already was, was successful. So they didn't come down to listen that often. So we were pretty much left to our own devices because that was seen and actually was part of who we were. Um, but that was, that was gradually changing. Everything was changing. And um, as I said, there was a certain amount of pressure. And we were changing as people. You know, we, we were, we, you know, I got married, Lol got married. Um, we, we, we began to understand the world a little bit more outside the studio environment. We, we were developing as people and our tastes were changing. Um, and I think that, that, that sort of impacted in, into what the group was coming or what it, what it could be or what it couldn't be. And there was a point where it ceased to work, where, I don't know, Lol and I were hankering after doing something experimental. So we'd invented this musical instrument or device that plays the guitar in a different way called a gizmo. And we wanted to try it. So we booked three weeks in Strawberry Studios to, to give it a shot, to see what it was capable of. And we found that that process was far more satisfying than what we'd recently been doing with 10CC. And this was, this was just as we were about to go into pre-production for a new 10CC album. Uh, and, okay, so we, we'd done that. We were buzzing about that and we weren't sure what to do about it. Um, and then we were due to go in to start recording a 10CC album and, and we went down to the studio to hear a song that, uh, that Eric and Graham had written um, to be included on the new album. And we didn't... We didn't like it. We thought it was, we thought it was lame. Um, so we said so. <laughs> you know, it was, and it was like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's, I mean, saying it now, it sounds like a bunch of spoiled kids. I don't like it, so I'm not going to do it. You know, it's, it's, and it probably was to, to a degree, but, as you know, what drove us and what drove me was continuously moving forward and trying new stuff and not resting on your laurels. And this felt like laurels. It, felt, to it sounds to me like becoming an adult. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Being able to yeah. say what you want and what you don't want in a way. So maybe yeah, that, uh, you can see that in a completely different way. Yeah. Well, it, that's how it impacted on... on on what we were doing at the time. It, it, somehow it, it, it wasn't about, it ceased to become art. It was, it was more about commerce, I think, at that point. Um, and we didn't, I didn't want that anymore. Um, so, you know, the nuclear option <laughs> happened, which was, which, which was a shame. 
but I think it's, you know, I mean, looking, looking past it now, I, I think it may be because partially we were, we were from the north of England where it was all, all one for all and all for one. We're all together, lads, you know, against the world. And that changed somewhat. I mean, other bands, contemporary bands like Roxy Music, who, who uh, were friends of ours, they didn't do that. It was, they had a much more sophisticated arrangement. If somebody wanted to do a solo project, they went ahead and do it. And, and the organisation accommodated that situation because they knew that they would learn something and bring that back to the table for the for the main event, you know. So, but that couldn't work here for for whatever reason. We were presented with the situation: no, you can't bugger off for six months and do your own thing. We've got a tour coming up, and new record expected. You're either in or you're out. To boil it down to to something that simple. So we decided to be out. Yeah, that sort of threat never works, does it? It's always a, the, the threat where you can't go along with it if you're given that ultimatum. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't that black and white, but that, right. you know, in a nutshell, that's, that's really what it was. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. In terms of video production, that also seems to have come about, uh, I think accident is probably the wrong word here, but it's almost in the experimental way, you make an Englishman in New York the video, and then suddenly (laughs) you become video producers yourselves. Um, How did that really happen? Well, our first, um, strangely enough, our first sort of run-in with, with powering music with pictures was nothing to do with us, in a sense, other than that a small section, instrumental section of the Consequences album was used on a Benson and Hedges cinema commercial and used extremely well. So initially, we, we were providing music for pictures. Um, how it happened was... We, we were still with, I think we were with Polydor now, but, you know, obviously in a, in a vastly smaller capacity than 10CC, I don't think we'd had a hit record uh, as yet. And we'd written and recorded this song called An Englishman in New York. And we weren't a touring band. There was just myself and Lord Cream, and we no, had no intention of becoming a touring band. So we figured maybe the only way to do it is to make some kind of a film, short film. They weren't called videos in those days. They didn't really exist. The only time you got to see a piece of music film was usually on, was either on top of the pops where the band couldn't show up or on the old grey whistle test where, for the same reason. So someone would make a weird little film to go with that piece of music. And we figured that was the only way to promote it. So we, 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 drawing on our previous artistic lives, college, uh, and a, an innate desire to become filmmakers one day, we sort of cocked up an eight-frame storyboard and took it to the label, uh, saying we want to make this film, you know, expecting to be kicked out the door. But they said, yeah, that's a good idea. But you have to work with a, a director because you've never done it before. Which, you know, obviously was, was, and you know, we didn't know a video camera from a film camera, really, but in those days. 
So we did. Um, and we found the experience utterly thrilling. Uh, of course, we were the artists, um, but it was our idea, and we had ideas of how the idea could be improved. You know, how we shot it, how, not sorry, how he shot it, how it was to be edited, and, and so on and so forth. In other words, it brought something out of us that had probably lain dormant since our art college days, to a great degree. And we took to it like ducks to water. It, it was a natural transition for us. And we were, must have been a real pain in the arse because, um, you know, we showed up at the edit and we were, what happens if you press this? Don't touch that one if we touch that. Don't pull that lever. We were, and the, the actual edited things, thing in the end, is, it's a bit of a mess looking back on it, but it does show that we weren't afraid to try things. And luckily enough, the director was, um, his name will come to me in a minute, um, was open enough to, to understand what was going on and allow us to try things, you know? And as it happened, the finished thing and the song was a hit in Europe. It wasn't a hit in, in the UK, but it was a hit all over Europe. Did being um, artists, um, Yes. help you actually work with artists when you were making videos for you know all these great artists during that era i think that is one of the reasons why we were successful in the media because at the time at the very beginning of the music video years there weren't that many people directing videos particularly in the uk and some had come from commercials some from television some from documentaries but I think we were the only duo directing that came from music and I think that made musicians much more comfortable to talk to people who could understand a what they were trying to say and b how they'd like to be portrayed and, and so there was a point of contact and I think that was incredibly helpful yes very much so I mean, you've, you know, you've talked about being experimental in, in 10CC musically, in, experimental in your, your uh, music with Lowell, experimental uh, in making videos. Where do you think, or what, what video that you've made for someone else has been actually uh, made better by you going into an edit suite, this is a generalization because maybe it's in some other way, you going into an edit suite and you mucking about. And actually that video suddenly took on a new life because of what you added to it. And what did you add to it? Two come to mind immediately. Um, the first one, I think, um, was uh, Rocket for Herbie Hancock. Um, it was a strange brief because MTV at the time apparently weren't playing um, many black artists. Um, so the brief was come up with an idea with Herbie in it that's not overt. And it's like, what? Okay, let's see if we can break this rule. <laughs> and I remember seeing a a short piece on a local news program in Manchester about 
this artist called Jim Whiting, and it showed a little bit of his work. So I, I, I sort of dove for the dive for the v, VCR machine, such as it was back in those days, frantically pressing buttons, and managed to tape about five minutes of this piece. And I think it was the week before the track had landed on our desk as a possible job. But we hadn't thought of anything yet. And when I saw Jim's work, it was like, that looks like that sounds. Um, and Lol agreed. So we, 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 we ran up an, an idea of how we could possibly make this happen. We met with Jim and he made a few more creatures. And we went to a studio and shot the shit out of it, basically. Not even to the music, because it was very noisy hydraulic machinery that made them work. So we just filmed them in, in sort of stylized domestic settings against the black background. We hadn't a clue how it, it was going to slot together, but we knew, knew in, in our bones that this stuff would work. Um, and when we hit the edit, we started editing it together, but we, we, we decided, difficult though it was, that one of the dominant sounds on the track was scratching. But that's not really possible to do on video, particularly back then. What you really needed to do was cut between the footage going forward and the different versions of the footage going backwards. So we transferred all the footage running backwards as well as forwards. And we spent hours cutting frame by frame between them. And we must have been there for like 20 hours or something because, you know, we had the stamina in those days. And we finished it. We looked at it and we thought, fuck, they're going to kill us. Because, no, seriously, because in those days, there was no such thing as a video commissioner. There was no such thing as you having to present a treatment to the management band or label. How it worked was, if they'd seen something that you'd done that they liked, they trusted you. They said, we want a film to go with this piece of music. Can you come up with something? And you said, yes. That's how it worked. You have this amount of money. Can you make it work for that? Yes. And we did. That's, it was as simple as that. It was all about trust. Um, and then obviously it changed. But back then, that's what happened. So we presented this thing that we'd done to the powers that be, and there was a few days of silence, <laughs> we were gritting our teeth and biting our fingernails. Nobody really knew what it was. Herbie apparently didn't understand it at all. But we felt that, we I, I don't know, just instinctively we felt that something was coming, something, MTV was only just beginning around about this time, I think. It hadn't been around for long. It was only there, it was only in America. And we just felt that, you know, live or die, this would give MTV a kick in the balls. Whether they'd show it or not is a different thing. But they did, and it was on high rotation for a long, long time and made the record a hit, you know. So it reinforced that attitude in us that whatever it was that we can bring to the party, however different and strange, is something that is going to work in this new medium. 
uh, and it didn't do our reputations any harm either. And we won, I think, five uh, MTV astronauts for it, the first MTV awards. What was amazing about, I remember seeing that when, you know, in the early 80s and seeing that on, on TV, probably on Top of the Pops, and actually being completely blown away by it because it was something so different. It also gave Herbie Hancock a mainstream hit, which, yeah. you know, had eluded him. Uh, so, yeah. th- you know, this showed really the power of video. But one thing that I think you've always done, which I found fascinating, is almost you've led technology. Do you know what I mean? You've made something by, let's say, pasting it together, <laughs> and then the technology <laughs> comes ac- along and can make it later. Do you know what I mean? Almost like Cry. Cry was, you know, this yeah. incredible video. Um, and it looks like something that a computer did, but it's not, is it? Well, the original idea for Cry, because Lol and I, we weren't particularly comfortable about making videos for ourselves. It was like, okay, these two cranky old artists have written a great song and recorded it. Who should we get to film it? Has to be us. <laughs> Unfortunately, the artists were us as well. So it's, it's a difficult one. So we had to come up with something that, that, was, that was simple and that would allow us to perform the song without going through mad gyrations or anything too ridiculous because the budget was going to be limited. Um, so our original idea was not to be in it at all. It was to have Torville and Dean skate to the song and film that. Unfortunately, they wanted to do it, but our diaries didn't match. They couldn't do it when it was needed to be done. So the thing that ended up as the final video was Plan B. It was, oh shit, what can we do? Oh, we'll just film our faces. And because it's the kind of song that anyone could sing, let's get loads of different people singing it as well. And we'll kind of line them up in the camera and and we'll think of something to do in edit. I should, maybe now's a good time to, to, to suggest that our approach to making these films was very much like our approach to making music. You know, we we try stuff, and if that chord didn't work, we we try a different chord. Or if that word worked better over here, if that phrase worked better over here, we we try it. It was all. It was essentially making both became trial and error to a great degree. Obviously, the further you spend in the media, the longer you spend in the media the more seeps into your consciousness and you know what to avoid and what to go for. But that way of thinking has, all, has always been there. So we kind of figured if we shot this stuff, there would be something interesting that we could do whilst editing to turn it into, into an, an interesting film. And initially, we just mixed, dissolved between the faces. If you actually look at the video, I think the first three or four facial mixes, it's just the whole face mixing to the next whole face, mixing to the next whole face. It's only from about four in the the faces began to, and I use the word loosely, morph from one face to another. And that was because we thought, I didn't that looks a bit shit. What about, why don't we try a wipe? Now a wipe is a very simple editing tool which can open open from the middle as a circle revealing whatever picture is underneath or right from the top to the bottom, the top down or 
this way or that way, but you can also have it with a soft edge, so you can't actually see the old one going and the new one coming. So we, we tried that, and it was like, bang, shit. When you go from face A to face B, there is a new face, there is a new person in between face A and face B. And that was like, that was, that was unbelievable. And we just carried on using that technique throughout the rest of the film. Um, again, it was a long edit. Um, but yeah, it, it worked incredibly well. And it was incredibly, incredibly simple because the, the human face inherently is attractive and interesting. It does hold your attention. And... But they were carefully chosen. Again, it was they, different to... Uh, the, the other not people carefully. But, yeah, they were chosen because they had interesting faces. Um, we essentially picked them out of a casting book. Um, and we sent every one of them a cassette of the song to learn prior to the shoot. Um, not everybody did particularly well, so we had to use them where they're not miming. Um, but... It, it, it actually really seemed to work better with this face for this point than the another face for this point. So, again, there are some sessions that you do that are somehow blessed or magical. The series of sessions jumping way back that we did for I'm Not In Love were magical. Everything that we tried on the finished recording worked incredibly well. Everything that we added worked incredibly well. And it was the same with crime. Uh, every face that we tried worked incredibly well. Um, so we were left with this thing at the end and we were, what the hell is this? They're not gonna kill, they're not gonna kill us for this one, but, but will it help the song do well? And again, the, the answer was yes. And it, it, it affirmed, reaffirmed, that if, if you come up with something that is, that is good and it is different to everything else that's going on, you do stand a chance of being noticed in a good way. It just reaffirmed that, that thing that had always been there from all those years ago, from Bill Clark. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. But many... Uh artists that I've talked to are who have a long history uh, and who have uh, a success in the past are often very rooted in the past. But this is something, I mean, you've just, it's not long ago you did your first solo album. You are still yeah. rooted in experimentalism. When we met at the Reeperbahn Festival a few years ago, there, you know, you had this uh, app, well, which was also yeah. an experimental uh, app. Um, yeah. And it's, there's been a massive development in your life. And although you have your successes, um, you are still like active and in the present, which is very unusual, I think, in the music business. Not that many people who have had a long career who still have that. So what do you strive for today? What did you strive with muscle memory? What do you look for today? Uh, 
again, it's, it's an intuitive thing. I look, I mean, the whole muscle, muscle memory project was, was experimental in that I, was, I ended up working with people who I'd never met. I don't know if you know anything about the history of it, but, but because my only musical instrument, the only instrument that I could play is drums, which isn't the best instrument to write songs with. So once I decided to make a record, um, I had to find people I could write with. Um, so I, I put an ask out there on Pledge Music, asking people to send me pieces of instrumental music that they thought I may be able to turn into songs. You know, I thought I might get 40, 50. I got 286 pieces of music, which is nuts. Uh, but marvellous, you know, I didn't expect that at all. So I had to, the idea being was um, I get a mix from each of them, a rough mix, put it in garage band and start singing over the top, which, which is a sort of technical way of doing what we used to do, sitting opposite somebody while they strum and I sang, you know, but I no longer have to make them coffee, um, which was kind of better. <laughs> And it worked incredibly well. I, I, there was a precedent a few years earlier, a couple of people, again, who I didn't know had sent me pieces of music for that very reason and asked me to write a song over each of them. And both turned out very well, ended up on the album, as a matter of fact. Um, but I, find it, I found it exciting that the discipline of having something that not only was written, but was recorded. Um, and that really worked well for me. I could sit at home and just try things, however outlandish, until I had something that I liked. And all I really did was go through the 286 pieces of music and whittle them down until I had 12 tracks that I felt I could work with. And then I tried things and found that I could and, and finished each one. But, but I, it was at the beginning of the project, I wasn't consciously looking for any particular style of music. I was, I was hoping to tap into the wellspring of talent that was out there. People, you know, recording on laptops in their bedrooms and garages and on buses or whatever. But again, it was the, it was the element of the unexpected that, that attracted me. This is, I like this, that is really interesting. Can I come up with anything that would work? For this, I didn't. I didn't want to play safe. I didn't want to want to come up with you know sort of something that lasts three and a half minutes on an acoustic guitar. Oh, that was lovely, you know. Make some fucking noise and send it to me. It was. It was. It's the challenge. Always the challenge that that that, that is exciting. And I actually didn't know that it would work as a cohesive album. So we started to put the track listing together, and it did, strangely enough. Um, and I was very pleased with the result. It, it is quite a contemporary sounding album because most of the people who I work with were way younger than me. Um, and I've only ever met one of them. <laughs> That's amazing. Still. Listen, Kevin, I just want to say finally, uh, thank you for the interview. But more than that, I want to thank your art teacher because I think he installed something <laughs> in you which has actually given all of us some amazing pleasure over the years. So uh, thank you again. 
Well, that's very, that's very kind. His name is Bill Clark. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Okay, thanks a lot, Kevin. That's My it. pleasure. All right, could you send me the uh, recording? Brilliant. No, no okay. way. You're not having <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I may have to chop it up into bits. And chop it up into bits, he didn't do. I was almost disappointed, but I left that last comment of his in the interview to show his thought process. And even though that was a joke, it sort of shows how he has kept his creative curiosity alive over the years. Now, if you enjoyed the podcast, please look out for the Linktree link and connect, support, add yourself to the newsletter or just join the Spotify music list. I'll see you next time. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.